Welcome to episode four of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Michelle Miscali, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. And I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. For those of you joining us for the first time, Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. So Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? We're talking about value-based contracting this time. Yeah, that's not a fun topic yeah, at all. Yeah, it's really not, not <laughs> fun to talk about. <laughs> it is a complicated topic indeed, but also one that we focused on in our March issue for PharmExec, uh, which you can find on our website at PharmExec.com. We recently had Julian, our European editor, and Lisa, our editorial director, on the podcast to talk about what their biggest takeaways were while researching their articles. We'll get to their conversation after this break. Just a listener FYI, when we recorded the podcast with Lisa and Julian, we were all in different locations. So when the conversation starts, you might notice a slight change in the sound quality. Hey, Kristen. What's up, Michelle? Did you see this article on global health partnerships in the pharma industry? I did, actually. I edited it. Oh, I must have missed it on our website, but I was just scrolling through Instagram and saw it. Wow, it's a really good thing that you follow the Instagram account Farm Executive, or else you would have missed it. I would have totally missed it. That's why I follow Farm Executive on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, and all of our other social media channels, which can be found at farmexec.com. issue um, talked about value-based contracting. So our guests today are Julian and Lisa, um, our international and online editor and our editorial director, to talk about their articles. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. So let's start off, uh, Julian. You've been looking at Italy, where the use of value-based contracts is more advanced. What kind of agreements are in operation over there? Yeah, over in Italy they've had uh, value-based agreements since 2006, and they've currently got four four of these. I'll just go over them, what they are. They're cost-sharing, um, which for which man manufacturers offer a full or partial discount for initial cycles of treatment. Uh, Risk-sharing, for which manufacturers offer partial reimbursement for patients who don't respond to treatment. The most popular, uh, the most widely adopted, should I say, is payment by results, uh, which requires a total reimbursement to the payer by the drug manufacturer for non-responding payments. And a more recent uh, introduction to the, to the um, scheme was success fee, where payment is due only for patients who respond to treatment. That sounds like a lot of information, but generally it's the last two that seem to be most used over there. And um, they're all managed by the Italian Medicines Agency, which, uh, which is called the Agenzia Italiana del Farmaco. So, Julian, would you say that the system has been successful? Well, it, it kind of depends on who you're talking to. You know, there's criticism out there, certainly from academics and commentators. Uh, one study from 2015 said that the amount of money that's actually been refunded through these schemes uh, is really trifling. Uh, that was the, those were the words they used, really trifling. Uh, it said that of, as of 2012, only, if we talk about dollars, about $151 million out of a total 
billion had been refunded. That just, that, that amounts to just 3.3%. So um, that was a pretty striking statistic. But um, the counter argument is that um, these agreements have facilitated access to high-cost oncology drugs. In fact, most of these agreements do relate to oncology uh, drugs. And almost all the high-cost oncology drugs are available in Italy. In Italy. And, and they've also, the agreements have seen uh, many drugs getting approval, where without them, you know, the negotiation process would have been more prolonged or maybe not ended in agreement. They, they're able to address areas of clinical uncertainty. They can serve as templates for revised agreements later on, you know, when, when the drug's uh, value and efficacy has been monitored, perhaps under the original value-based agreement, and then maybe there's another agreement, another financial agreement that comes out of it. And I think I'd, what I'd say about this was, uh, was ultimately is that, um, you know, what people seem to agree on is that been, there's been some administration issues and uh, procedural problems uh, in, in sort of uh, managing this system um, in terms of, you know, ap applying for requests, for uh, re refunds from pharma companies and, you know, who's responsible for what. And there's been some variation across the regions in the country. Uh, and as you'd expect, you know, some clinicians and hospitals and doctors are not happy to spend their time filling in forms to request refunds from pharma. And that's, you know, that's been an issue, I think. Well, that's really interesting to me because in our, in the article that I wrote up was based on um, a panel as well as some interviewing with, on, you know, this side of the pond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're, everything that, you're, that they've experienced is kind of what, is coming up now on this side, you know, in the United yeah. States, because, you know, they're just dabbling. I mean, they're dabbling in that there are a number of these agreements, but now that they've done a couple and it's moving forward, now they're starting to, you know, look at the same questions that they've yeah. already faced over there. So Yeah, I think the worry is, though, that Italy has been doing it for 12 years. <laughs> And yeah. uh, there are still these issues. So I think that that is a lesson to be learned, you know, that uh, try and, you know, a approach these problems right up front because obviously these are problems that have developed over time and have become an issue. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe other countries can fast track to these and try and sort them out. But, yeah, that, that's interesting to know that, um, that they're already experiencing this. And I, I guess that's going to be what everybody experiences uh, unless they, you know, think about it in a different way. In my article, we um, the uh, gentleman from Aetna had touched on how he didn't think that it should be an increase or a burden on the physicians, these kinds of agreements, but yeah, uh, because they have all the data themselves in the plan, in the health plan, but Italy's single payer, so they would have to get the information from the physician, I guess? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the U.S. is going to have its own... Uh, complications on top of this, perhaps, you know, mm -hmm. or, or or maybe, you know, a number of different ways of doing it. So um, I guess it, you know, it's, I guess doctors feel that, that they've got enough on their workload, of, you know, in, on their plate, um, and that's going to be the case, I guess, in a lot of countries. So um, that's something that it has to be worked out and has to be uh, ironed out uh, early on, I think. Julian, can you tell us a little bit about what the industry perspective is on the Italian system? I know that you guys actually just talked about this a little bit, touched on it, but can you go a little bit more in depth for us? Yeah, well, I spoke to ICON's uh, project manager in market access, called Andrea Landi, and he said they've been quite successful from the industry perspective. You know, they've 
helped to create this collaborative environment for payers and manu manufacturers. Um, and I also spoke to uh, Professor Fabrizio Gianfrati, who's from the University of Ferrara, and he told me that, you know, pharma companies like these agreements because they speed up the price negotiation process and therefore the road to reimbursement. And he actually said that they've helped them maintain a higher price, with Italy being a reference price country, you know, um, other countries will, will follow. And so that's one benefit, he said, has, that has been so far. But I think those those administrative problems, the misalignment problems, uh, remains an issue for the industry. Um, and uh, Landy told me that um, there have been some issues with companies not properly communicating the value, you know, uh, up front, and not issuing clear endpoints about what the success of the product will entail. So the, rem the, the key takeaway is that companies have to be clear, uh, knowledgeable about what they're getting into, carry out proper due diligence ahead of these agreements, uh, consider the long-term strategy, consider any exit routes, if necessary, when planning them. Um, and uh, those are things that for, for other countries and certainly the U.S. to take away. I think, I think one thing I would sort of end with on this is that whatever you see, uh, uh, whatever you, however you view them, you know, these are going to be more prominent, I think, these types of agreements because, you know, we've got this high-cost immunotherapies and combination drugs, which health, uh, healthcare systems budgets aren't going to be able to pay for at all, you know, not, not outright. So there's got to be a different way of paying for them, and I think so. Even though Italy's come, pulled back a little bit from, from these agreements of late, I don't think they're going to go away. You know, in fact, we're going to, we're going to be seeing more of them. Julian, I have a quick question about that. You mentioned that there are some positives. The gentleman that you spoke to uh, said that some of the pharma companies, you know, do like this because it helps maintain a higher price and, and some other aspects. Why isn't that carrying over to the U.S., that positive um, attitude towards value-based contracting? I think it's such early days there, you know. I think um, this is really entrenched in, in Italy now. Um, companies doing business in Italy need to know that this is how they do business. That's certainly not the case, you know, even outside, just outside Italy and Europe. So it's a whole culture of, of value-based, you know, agreements has got to grow up around it, I think. So, you know, you're just getting these tales, I guess, over there of some early early attempts, some experimental forays into this area. And I think it's it's got to be something that uh, that has to be given time, you know, and, and then a, a process of doing them will emerge. But I guess a lot of people are going to, well, a lot of companies may get their fingers burnt, you know, or, or may have some bad experiences in, in the initial uh, period. Interesting. How often, I, I'm sorry, um, how often oh, do they, um, in Italy, how often do they review the the contract? So I think yeah. they have the initial one and then they, you know, once you start getting the outcomes data and everything and, and then it gets revisited, is that? Yeah, I think in two years it gets revisited and then, of course, Depending on what outcomes they've seen, you know, this this can be either to the to the benefit or the detriment of a, of a company because obviously the price can be, you know, if the outcomes have not achieved what what was what was expected, then you know prices can be pushed down. But that's why I think you know this long term view of the agreement is is necessary at the start. You know, you, you're in it for the long term, and you have to accept that this could happen. These uh, you know these re these reviews can 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 change the you know, change the goalposts. Yeah, that's what if Harry Vargo was saying. That he's the director of trade relations for Aetna, and he was saying you should be looking at it 
initially for uh, in the long haul. You know, you got you, it's not just a one-year contract when you start out because you're doing all these negotiations that you really should because it's so um, involved, you know, have them initially for the two years. But they didn't really tackle that next step. Yeah, I think it's something to watch uh, in in the U.S., certainly uh, over the next few years, and, and then it would be time to review how, how successful it's been. It's certainly too early, I suppose, to say. Uh, no, but that shouldn't deter people from doing it because uh, it's got to be done, you know, in, in, in some cases as we get to these high-cost, particularly high-cost therapies. The good thing is, though, that what you're saying, you know, they have – the patients are – have these drugs available to them, they are paying for it, you know, so it's yeah. not like yeah. it's a barrier uh, but, at all, you know. Well, yeah, I have to stress that it's it's generally on, oncology, uh, right. high-cost oncology drugs where this is being implemented, you know. I think it's like 80% of the agreements are in, in high-cost oncology drugs. So, you know, the question of whether it gets spread out to, say, chronic disease or, you know, diabetes is, is, is a very different one because um, the endpoints, the success, uh, of the treatment is more difficult to measure, of course, and um, lifestyle issues influence that as well as the treatments. So, you know, it, they're pretty much uh, sort of adhering to this high-cost oncology area at the moment. So that will be interesting to see what other, you know, what other areas can utilize these drugs and how, and how those discussions can go, uh, these agreements rather, and how these discussions can go, you know. It's so interesting to be kind of observing this and seeing it at all of the different stages. I don't know what you guys think about it, but I find it super interesting to hear these different perspectives. No, it is. Yeah. Really, that's what I thought was the good thing about the issue itself was that, you know, we have your article, Michelle, you know, about, you know, the landscape and some of the challenges. And then my article is kind of people going through it. You know, it's the the manufacturer, the health plan, there's the diagnostics viewpoint as well as um, the patient management, patient care piece, you know, their behavioral aspects um, involved with the outcomes. And then, you know, Julian's piece, which is there, they're living it 10 to 12 years out, you know, so um, I think it really works. I think the issue is really good. And we have Kristen's chart too, which discusses some of the um, – you know, what Julian was just mentioning, the outcomes in diabetes, you know, for those drugs as well as the oncology. So I agree with you, Michelle. So did you see a spread over there of uh, the the, the, the um, agreements that you looked at or, you know, um, started to look at? Was there a spread of therapy areas or did you see, you know, um, a focus in yeah, one area? Yeah, we didn't really – I mean, in, in the chart, it was mostly oncology and – HB1 and HbA1c levels, right? Is that what it is for um, yeah. for the uh, di uh, type 2 diabetes? But I'm not sure, Kristen, if there was other ones. Those are the ones that not really. Uh, yeah, there, there wasn't much diversity in it that I found. Yeah, and we didn't really get into that therapeutic area in my article. Speaking of your article, can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about it, Lisa? So basically, it was based on a panel. Um, from our sister company, CBI, that they had held in Philadelphia called Outcomes-Based Contracting. And so the panel was creating a win-win scenario linking contracts to cost savings evidence and better patient outcomes. On the, uh, the moderator was Jerry Conway, and he's executive 
vice president of managed care, added diagnostics for CDX Diagnostics, and then Harry, who I mentioned with Aetna, I probably will not pronounce Sashin's name correctly, but it's uh, Sashin Kamalbal, uh, VP Head, Center for Health Systems Innovation and Leadership with Pfizer, and Mark O'Connor with Current Health, who um, you all spoke with last week or the week before on the podcast, and they provide the personalized care management for um, for companies, you know, hoping to increase adherence and um, education with the patients. So it was interesting, you know, to hear all of their, not that, I don't want to say struggles, because they were all very positive about this, um, you know, this winding road we're going on. You know, they were basically saying, yeah, we have to do this, which is what Julian just said. You know, it's not not going to happen, and it's going to be worse if we just ignore it, you know. So, you know, some of the barriers, though, are not barriers. Uh, you know, it's just you have to work through all these questions and having transparency and having clarity, you know. Yeah. And, Aetna, you know, Harry was saying specifically, you know, we're not saying – we're not going to pay for your drug. You know, this isn't what the conversation's about. The conversation is about how we get the best possible outcomes for patients. So, you know, the gentleman from Pfizer, he was very much about this is for the patient. And Mark, of course, as a patient-facing service, you know, he's very much about getting patients involved in their own care and and understanding um, the education and so, and the diagnostics, of course, is helping because obviously, if you're a drug, if you you have the diagnostic, you have the biomarker, and it's proven to work in that um, disease state, of course, you're already going to improve the outcome for that individual, you know, for that uh, population. So, yeah, and also I was going to say that um, if you look at some of the problems that maybe Italy had, I don't want to keep going on the problems, but I mean, you know, there are issues yeah, no. we have to have yeah. to look at. Um, Guy Sherwin from Icon, who I also spoke to, did did say, you know, well, of course, with with AI and with data, um, uh, you know, uh, collecting data, the, the ability to collect data and more sophisticatedly do that um, in the in the coming years, could iron out some problems in terms of getting those patient that patient data and and um, getting the information back to um, back to the payers, back to the companies. So, you know, this this will continue to evolve, and technology might uh, help. To facilitate the, these uh, some of the some of the um, challenges, I think that that are still there in terms of administration, anyway. Yeah, no, technology is a huge piece, um, and it's a huge driver. Um, you know, we're currently working on our next issue, um, which is discussing the uh, talent in pharma, and you know, I don't want to give it away, but basically, you know, they're saying because of all these needs for mining data and using technology to find the um, the outcomes or this, the new role in pharma is chief data officer and data specialists that report into them need to be had now. You know, it's a big, yeah. big role, so it's interesting. Yeah. What do you think the future is going to be in the U.S. and overall of value-based contracting? Is that for me? I hope so. Either one of you can answer, sure. Either can one answer of that. You, yeah. yeah, or both of you. I mean, I'd love to hear both of your perspectives because well, yeah. you both have different perspectives probably. 
Well, I, I don't know. I was just looking at I was looking at Italy, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, you'd think it would have spread out into Europe maybe a bit more decisively, and it, it's taken a long time. So I think it's probably going to be at a similar pace um, in the rest of Europe and the U.S. Both coming to this now with with the same problems, you know, in terms of healthcare budgets. I'm talking about the major markets in in Europe. So um, I, I think it will be. Well, I think it's going to have to happen quite soon uh, it's going to have to roll out quite soon in terms of um you know getting it established um getting it more established and as these high cost immunotherapies come about and combination drugs come about you know there's no time to just be waiting or observing this other country is doing it there's no wait you know I'll just wait let's wait 5 years see what happens there I just don't think that's going to happen now i think things are going to start rolling a lot quicker so um I can't see any major difference in the way that the U.S. might approach this. Um, obviously, it's a very different healthcare system, so you know there's, there's different negotiations to be had. But you know, it's it's there and it's it's uh, it's an option for addressing this issue of very very high cost drugs. Yeah, it's so uh, from a upper high level just overview. I see this just this integration or this relationship between the various stakeholders really interesting and obviously you know the u.s is going this way you know we have to because of all the costs we're doing um you know more outcomes based in the actual health care you know like hospitals are judged how quickly they can get people out of the hospital and on their feet you know in a positive way not a negative way but um i just find it really interesting that most of these industries, you know, that have been separate for a while, and now they have to come together and talk to each other, and it's really causing some downstream effects. So it's kind of just interesting. I don't know how else to put it. Michelle, sorry. <laughs> no, lost. it is interesting. Yeah. Um, I agree because you really can't say much about it because you, you don't know. And I feel right. like, yeah. you know, we go to these conferences and we talk to these people and we interview and we do these articles, but it's so hard because – no one really can predict what's happening exactly because they're not sure. And I think it's mm -hmm. so individual to both each therapy and each company mm -hmm. and each yeah. outcome. So it is well, really hard yeah. to predict it. And um, the one thing I noticed um, looking at Italy was that uh, there was a report a couple of years ago uh, that said that uh, AFA or the Italian Medicines uh, Agency, um, still hadn't um, published any report that included relevant clinical outcomes on mm. drugs on drugs subject to uh, outcomes outcomes based agreements so you know that's after 10 years if the if the payers if the if the regulators if the if the government aren't you know providing this uh, this um this feedback um this evidence then of course it will be difficult to to uh, get a view on what's working and what isn't so an issue there for Italy, I think. Uh, I'm not sure what, what's happened in the meantime, but, um, you know, there, there needs to be, uh, I think they've done it for long enough to be able to, uh, you know, to try and put some evidence out there that certainly other countries can can properly look at, rather than look, listen to anecdotal, you know, mm -hmm. information and talking to companies and saying, what do you think of them, you know, to actually actually get some proper data about it. And now it's time for our segment, Leadership Tips from Pharma Execs. 
Hi, I'm Molly Harper, Vice President of Commercial Development with Exia Therapeutics. And the career tip I have to share is when thinking about planning and seeking out career experiences, to push yourself to gain experiences that are way outside your comfort zone. If you are a natural salesperson, find a rotation or experience in analytics or research. If you're a natural numbers person, find an opportunity to experience and work in sales or an opportunity that is intensively interpersonal. It may not be where you spend your career, and it may be really painful to think about and even at first experience, but these opportunities will make you a tremendously more effective leader long-term, helping your team and everyone else that you work with. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. If you've enjoyed the podcast, take a screen grab on the device that you're listening on and send us a photo and comment on Twitter at Farm Exec. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at Farm Exec, on Instagram at Farm Executive, and on YouTube, which you can find on our website. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.